0: Warning The following episode contains scenes of graphic sexual violence which some audience may find distressing. Vivica Widow's Knock Knock Episode thirty narrated by Leo St. Paul The Browning House had a strange atmosphere. It had been inhabited for ten years and yet it felt like no one had dared cross the boundary. There were some new thrower pillows on the battered old sofa, but they too were filthy. The windows had heavy shutters. The curtains were dusty and thick with mould. How could anyone live here, Winslow wondered to himself. Vincent Baines, his harbour house resident, had described it to him many times, but he never imagined it to be so filthy. The music teacher had thought to go there for safety, but that hadn't worked out so well for him, now had it. It didn't work out well for the doctor either, trying to help George, and it wouldn't work out for Julia. George was a special case. He wasn't quite driven by his lust the way most young men were. He had his desires, but they were different. He didn't quite think with his brain either the way sane people would. The doctor had come to the Browning house as instructed. He couldn't stay in the city where the scope of an owen's gun could be on him at any time. He didn't plan on spending much time there. He would be back on top soon enough, and when he did, he would be putting Julia out of the game for good. His heart skipped a beak as the cheap phone he had bought at a Storm and Bolton and rattled on the table. One of the chairs had been broken, no doubt by George in a temper. Mickey Doyle was the only person he had given a number to and a message that read, Have to be out of town for a while. I'm not abroad, so your cousin needn't worry. I can be back in the city within the hour." Sincerely, G. Winslow. The doctor quickly answered the phone. The remoteness of the house made everything seem so much louder. Yes, Mickey, yes, he welcomed. Good gracious, Gregory, where are you? Winslow looked at a pair of white briefs that had been discarded on the floor. Never mind that, he said. Hope you have some good news for me. Mickey chuckled. I do indeed. My cousin has finished an investigation into Harbour House. Winslow clutched his chest. It was a much-needed relief. I'm so glad. His stronghold was coming back to him. i trust all is well. Mickey replied, If you hadn't been hiding yourself away, you could have been here to witness the entire thing. They found nothing. It was really quite splendid. Now Karen is annoyed at the resources that were wasted. The keys of the facility are to be handed over, but we need you here to sign the documents. It had been a long time since Winslow had felt so jovial. You're sure it's safe, he asked. It all went well. His good friend Mickey Doyle assured it couldn't have gone better. He was Mayor Mickey Doyle now, and what was sitting on the hot seat of the shady city if you couldn't help your friends? I have an appointment for you with Carn at one o'clock, but you have to hurry. Do not be late, Gregory. You know she won't reschedule. Gregory tried to remember if Carn Doyle was an early or late luncher. One o'clock could be a time when her belly was full and when she was pacified. It could also be the time when she was still waiting with a ravenous hunger. Yes, Mickey, of course. I'll be there right away. After Mickey rang off, Winslow stepped out on the gravel driveway. He gave thought to Buddy. Surely he wasn't still watching. The browning house was isolated, but that didn't matter. But he could be hiding anywhere, still with his scope following him. He almost stuck for cover when a blackbird took flight from a nearby tree. He slipped into his car like a snake and drove away. He had an appointment with Judge Karen Doyle arranged by his good friend Mickey, and the judge would not reschedule. He had to collect his harbour house keys or risk losing them for good. As he drove back to the city, his eyes returning to the rearview mirror constantly, He was still unable to shake that feeling of Buddy watching him. At least he would be safe when he got inside the courthouse. He would retrieve Harbour House and he would deal with Buddy Owen them. Things were changing in the Shady City. Things were changing for the dominant names. Penn, Beckenridge, Harvester, Owen. But things were also changing for individuals. Those who had sought to make a name for themselves like Winslow and like Tabitha. Even reporters like myself. It took a certain distraction from humanity a certain disregard for the value of life, honour and morals to succeed. This was something the eminent Dr. Winslow had in abundance. As he raced along the city main street, still fearing being caught in Buddy's scope, he almost collided with a woman who was carrying a load of harvester goods in the harvester tote bags. The typical snobbish attitude of the people of city main caused her nose to upturn. Watch where you're going, she barked as she tried to steady her bags again. Winslow started to help her with her bags, but the bang of her car backfired and caused him to abandon that pursuit. The courthouse was the Almighty's waiting room in Colford. The smell of polish on the mahogany, the brightness of the shine on the marble floor, all screamed power to Winslow. She was a difficult mistress to please, but if she allowed you to sample her sweet delights, she could pleasure you like no other. Winslow knew this, and he salivated at the idea of having a taste having his harbour house back complete with the stamp of approval from Judge Carn Doyle herself. He didn't want to seem over-eager, nor did he want to seem complacent. He hadn't had the chance to groom properly or brush his teeth at the browning house, so he was a little out of sorts. Put your best foot forward, Papa would always say. No one likes a man who pays no care to his presentation. Winslow was in full agreement with that, but there just hadn't been time for him to present himself properly. He needed harbour house back, and then he would present then he would present to the entire city. "'Excuse me, sir,' a court clerk stopped him. "'Her name was Diane, and it had been she who had been there to meet him in Luen. "'She was one of Carne's minions, clearly an admirer. "'She was well presented. "'In fact, she was so well presented she could be a body double for the judge herself. "'Well, Diane, it seems your attempts to discredit the good doctor didn't bore much fruit. "'If Carne was annoyed at the wasted resources, Diane may just find herself being to blame.' I have been personally requested by Her Honourable, Winslow stated with pride. He couldn't help but enjoy the way Diane's face dropped. It added years to her. I'll head right on in, if you please. The hall was lined with well-equipped men. They were not bailiffs, nor were they clerks. They were members of the much fabled Black Bands. They had been brought together by Sergeant Major Doyle, with the intention of creating an elite team capable of stopping rebellions, uprisings, and extreme civil unrest. Upon the sight of them, Winslow slowed his walk to a stop. They weren't paying him any attention, but they cast a dark shadow. He was almost at the point of turning and retreating when Mickey leaned out of the door to Judge Doyle's office. Gregory, he called in a hushed, urgent tone. Hurry, for God's sake, don't keep her waiting. With his good friend Mickey Doyle's encouragement, Winslow passed the black bands and entered the lair of the judge. Colonel herself was sat behind her desk. Four pillars bearing the lawmaker's symbol like eyes from the above stood tall behind her. She had files placed before her. Winslow took a seat. It's a pleasure, Karen. It's So nice to see you. Carn Doyle was unmoved, her pale face expressionless. I'm in office. You will address me with my proper title. Yes, of course, I do apologise, Your Honour. The judge lifted the first of the files. On October the 19th, you were given notice to allow my bills to audit your facility. You were also asked to deliver a resident 0109 to my custody. Is that correct? Winslow looked to Mickey first, but the mayor said nothing. Um, yes, ma'am, that is correct, he eventually replied. He refused to respond. The judge dropped the file on the table and collected the next. On October the 25th, the case was escalated further. You were served notice of order, and a warrant was given for Residence zero one zero nine. Is that correct? Winslow blinked. They had already been through this. Uh, yes, ma'am, that is, of course, correct. The second file was dropped. Still you refused to respond. Winslow tried to explain. It's a very busy time. I had so much to do and, of course, personal issues. Your office takes president, but my residents were sick in need of my care. The judge scooped up the final file in her hand. On October 30th, a full summons was granted and my bailiff sent to your facility by force. I do sincerely apologise for that, ma'am. I'm so sorry for any convenience that this issue may have caused. As I stated at the time, I was under a great deal of pressure. Karen Doyle narrowed her gaze. Yes. We have documented that. We're also taking into consideration your assistance in the search for Tony McKinney. So now I'm willing to move forward. After a thorough investigation of the facility, my bailiffs have found nothing. Winslow grinned. Well... We aim to heal, Your Honour. Harbour House is the greatest facility in Colford and can help so many when it's reopened. The door opened without knocking. Van Holder of the Black Bands and a companion named Monster, a huge man with an animalistic presence, entered. They stood by the door. My bailiff's found nothing. That was until one of your nurses, Beverly Myers, stepped forward, Judge Doyle explained. Gregory Winslow, you're under arrest. Monster pulled Winslow from his chair. Wait, Winslow screamed. Done nothing wrong, Beverly is a liar. Doyle flicked open the last file. Your charges are as follows, Mr. Winslow. The torture and exploitation of at least 32 victims, including Martin Winslow and Alexander Ferrold. That number continues to grow. Also for the murder of Mark Mackenzie, Scott Cross and Laura Doyle. This number also continues to grow. Finally, multiple accounts of the rape of Julia Harvester. Lies, Winslow shrieked. Mickey, tell her! I'm also in the capacity of my office, replied Mickey. That's Mayor Doyle. Winslow wouldn't be able to shake Monster's grasp. After reading him his rights, the judge was not done. I hereby revoke your license to practice medicine indefinitely. You're no longer to assume the doctor title, and in any attempts to re-register will be denied. You'll be remanded in custody until your trial. Given the nature and magnitude of your crimes, no bail will be granted, and I am authorizing a full psychiatric evaluation. Damn it all, Mickey! I'm taking you down with me! I'm taking you down! Winslow shrieked as he was pulled from the office of the judge. The pen auction house, the knock-knock club, harbour house. There were three down and one more to go. As her honourable Judge Karen Doyle prepared for her next appointment, her long shadow was cast over the map of Colford, plunging the Belfield area into darkness, home of the Mack Sons Distillery, provider of the finest whiskey in the Sherry City and the current whereabouts of fugitive Patrick Mack. The sailing was smooth. Although Kimura had vomited a couple of times, she didn't know how long she had been travelling for. Restless sleep had been intermittent. She and twenty other girls had been locked below deck. and the bottom of the boat was only darkness and the smell of rats. She was told she needn't to be frightened, but she couldn't help it. Her village had been celebrating her thirteenth birthday when they came. They took her and many of the other girls. They told them that they would have a better life. They would be like princess brides, similar to the ones that they'd read about in storybooks. Some of the girls didn't want this. They disappeared through the night. The boat they'd been crammed into didn't seem much like the princess carriages from the books, but maybe it would all get better when they reached their destination. One of the girls with them had been beaten by their escorts. She probably couldn't speak their language. she tried to comfort some of the other girls, but communication was a problem. One of them, a 12-year-old, had fallen unconscious. She was terribly dehydrated. The girl who couldn't speak collected some of the rainwater that was dripping down on them and rubbed it into the girl's dry, cracked laps. Never had Camilla been enclosed with so many people and yet felt so alone. The boat continued to tear through the sea towards her destination. Camilla was told all of her dreams would come true in the city of Colford. She sure hoped so. It was early morning and the phone buzzing woke Nan harvester. She leaned over and checked. Shipman 0612 had arrived. She sat up. This was good. It had been the first shipment for a while. It was still dark outside and the farm would be stirring soon. She patted Jonathan lying beside her. Jonathan, she whispered, John, you have to get up. I have to go. I need you to keep an eye on things on the farm. Jonathan didn't object. He sat up, stretched and slipped out of bed. Nan watched her son's naked body as he disappeared into the adjoining bathroom. It was going to be a good day. Another shipment of Nanny's little noughties for the pot. She climbed out of bed herself and crossed to the window. She pulled the green curtains open and allowed the world in. The sun was just beginning to climb up to the horizon. She felt Jonathan's arms slip around her waist, having returned from the bathroom. He was now wearing a beige pair of overalls that once belonged to his father. Have a good day, Mum, he said. I well, John, she replied. The best day. By the time Nan arrived at Chamberlain Docks, the daylight had dawned on Swanton. A beautiful warmth was going through the icy air. Nan met Harbour operator, Anthony Renetti. Glad to see you, Nan, he said. Got the ferryway heading to Halfield at 11.40. They'll be coming in at port at 9. We'll need your ship turned around by 8. Nan smiled sweetly. I won't even need that much time, Anthony. I'll be in the way before you know it, just like a little fairy. It was then he noticed the tote bag she was carrying. It was filled with fruit, vegetables and meat packets. This is for your mum, she explained, handing the bag over. I've not had the chance to pop up and see her yet. You can give her this for me. I'll be up to see her real soon, let her know I haven't forgotten her. I missed her at church last Sunday. Anthony collected the bag gratefully. He was supposed to oversee all shipments, but he knew Nan. She stood as his confirmation sponsor at church when Uncle Roddy and his dad had a falling out. He supposed it would be no harm to let the sweet farmer's wife through. Widowed, charitable, Christian women. He had to take the groceries into the office and store them in the fridge anyway. It wasn't until she got to the gangway that the skipper opened the door. Light flooded onto the girl's eyes. Kamala's legs were weak. The mute girl offered her her arm to steady her. Nan smiled at Kamala but it didn't comfort her. I see the travel was little snug girls. I'm ever so sorry. We couldn't afford better, I'm afraid. We are a charity, after all. But none of you should worry. Camalo's pushed towards the skipper. Separate the virgins from those sexually active. I'd like them to be put to work right away. She rounded on the mute girl. I don't know this one. She clutched the girl's face. Exotic. Pure. A new addition, the skipper explained. She was last minute, but we thought you'd like her. Nan nodded. Oh, I like her very much. She's beautiful. What's your name? Nan asked the girl. The girl looked at Kamala. Do you speak English? Nan asked softly. She surveyed the other girls. The dummy has been thrown from the pram, she said. Nan frowned. Excuse me? Move, move! Cries were heard. A blockade was thrown down and a fleet of agents descended upon the scene. Agents Kim, Lydia, Franklin and Reynolds were on front line. They were nowhere to run. Kim grabbed Nan's arm and Harvester, and placing you under arrest for trafficking. Continuing to read her rights, the other agents looked to bring Skipper and the crew in. Lydia took control of Kamala and the other girls. It's okay, you're safe now, she assured them. Frankly, began to interpret in their native language. Well done, Agent Ragrag, Rag. Kim congratulated the new girl. Agent Ragrag Rag was 19, but given her the youthful looks, she'd been chosen for the undercover mission. she had allowed herself to be taken and moved with the girls. She'd been to hell and back, but the girls were now safe. The mission was a success. Like dominoes, the great powers of Colford continued to fall. Having stayed away from the farm all day, it was well past the time Julia returned home. She dressed in something more comfortable and made her way back downstairs. As the door opened into the entry hall, she didn't call a welcoming to any family or guests. She was expecting a quiet house that night. In a display of despair, Jonathan came tearing from the lounge when he heard her footsteps. "'Jules!' he cried. "'I've been trying to call you. Where have you been?' Julia leaned casually by the window. saw your miss calls. "'Just wasn't answering.' "'It's Mum,' he explained. "'She's been arrested. They have her for trafficking. "'The Nan Foundation is closed pending further investigation. "'They won't set bail. "'She's going to prison. "'What are we going to do?' "'Well, that's unfortunate,' said Julia softly. "'She took her brother's hand. "'I'll tell you what we're going to do. "'Nothing.' We are going to let her rot in prison for the rest of her life. Jonathan pulled his hand away. His eyes widened. Julia went on. She let him back in here. You have no idea what it's like to have his disgusting, trembling hands touch you to satisfy his depraved appetites whilst you watch your father imprisoned in hospital. Do you have any idea what it's like to look into the eyes of someone who knows you're just about to end their life? Jules, Jonathan sobbed. She was her mother. Julia shrugged. I don't care. I have and always will do what needs to be done, Jonathan pressed. What are you saying? Julia smiled her sweet smile. I'm saying I gave the court everything it needed to go after both of them. I'm saying I will bring you down too and I won't bat an eyelid. Jonathan nodded. She smiled her nice smile. Julia Halfstar was a nice girl. She always had been. She took her brother's hand again and her touch was softer. We'll be fine with poor mummy and daddy gone. I'll have to work extra hard, but the farm will be just fine. It's late now. I'm going to have some herbal tea and a nice hot bath. A tear spilled from Jonathan's eye. His sob caught her attention. She turned and agilely crossed the hall again. She opened the window to let the stifling air escape from the farmhouse. What's all this fuss about, she asked. She pinched his cheek, her grip twisted. Jonathan gasped. He had no answer for his little sister. I'm just putting everything back in its place. Everything is so much neater when things are in their place. Beck Tower, Owen Ink, and all the other little blocks laid neatly in a row. I have much to do, John, and I can't have you holding me back. Well as they all went on bickering among themselves, they failed to notice their farm line grow. They were also so concerned with protecting the row and they hadn't counted the amount of fresh new halves of their stores all the way from City Main to our latest on Love Street in Belfield. I'd very much like to take a walk up Love Street, all the little blocks neatly in a row, and suddenly the city becomes a much nicer place. Goodbye, John. Bang! Bang. John was shot in the centre of his forehead. His body dropped with the weight of slaughtered cattle. She stepped over the body. She wanted to run a bath, relax and shake off all that had happened. When I began my story into the mare, I had been warned away from it. My fellow reporters told me it would lead me to dangerous places. The events unfolded, and now as the largest titans in the city prepared to face off, they failed to notice a great monster rising in the north. What was most dangerous about the harvester monster was that it was a friendly face everyone welcomed into their home. The boss was Bonton's pride. It was now a Capiso stronghold. For those bearing the name Penn, it was not going to be an easy place to make home. Not that it was easy for anyone. Marcus Penn was introduced to this when Capusole members flooded him in his cell and he was forced to fight through the numbers until the guards intervened. Simon he targeted in the showers. He fought back too, but it was only going to get worse. Governor Avery West stepped in. The prison he was placed in charge of had been assigned so many new guards since the arrival of Balio into CBD that... He barely recognised most of the faces as he crossed the halls of the boss to his office. Guards, legal staff, even the medics and admin, all were different. There were so many new arrivals. They made the inmates uncomfortable, but random outbursts of violence from the guards kept them pacified. Inside his office, Avery was met by two guards. They had in their custody two of the pens. Their faces matched and their expressions matched too. Take a seat, gentlemen, Avery invited. Simon seemed hesitant at first, but when Marcus took his seat, he followed suit. Let me begin by apologizing on behalf of my guards for the extra attention you've been getting lately. I wanted you to know that I'm doing all I can to see that it doesn't happen again. Why? Marcus wanted to know. This was his first audience with the governor, so he was familiarizing himself with the type of man he was. Avery nodded to the guards. They both took a step back. I want to make you as comfortable as possible, he admitted. When you're inside the boss, you're my responsibility. And I take the responsibility of any of my inmates very seriously. I've been here a long time and I've seen it all. I've seen riots, I've seen contraband, I've seen men hang from the roof. When you both came in, we expected a handful, but you've caused little trouble and you've even kept some of the other inmates in line. If you're going to be with me for the foreseeable future, we may as well keep our acquaintances friendly. As a matter of fact, in a token of friendship, I have a gift for you, if you care to follow me. Simon and Marcus were escorted to an exercise yard. It was smaller than the main one the inmates used. Two guard towers were perched, each with a gunman to post. This is exercise yard B. The guard up there, here Avery pointed to the left. His name is Rukov. I've known him for years. If you continue to behave like gentlemen, he'll give you no trouble. On the right up there, he indicated to the other, his name is Gorvich and picked him especially for her my squad here and he'll follow the same rules why did you bring us here marcus inquired simon already spotted the reason reggie he called on the other side of the fence sat the final triplet for them to behold again forgetting the gunmen and the guards both the triplets ran to meet their brother at the barrier between them what the fuck are you doing here asked simon with a snarl I came to find you said reggie could show a little gratitude you know si Simon shook his head. Do you have any idea of the danger you've put yourself in? Reggie shrugged. He sat himself down on the ground. He's right, Marcus agreed. You can't stay here. Reggie folded his arms and remained defiant. Well, I'm not going anywhere. If you two are in danger, I am too, so may as well just leave it. Simon was still shaking his head, but he had softened. You're a fucking idiot. Reggie laughed. Yeah, I know, but I'm the idiot on this side of the fence. Marcus turned his attention back to Avery. Avery approached him. No one else will be able to use this area. It's long-term solution, but at least you will have the chance to regroup. Marcus frowned. Why are you doing this? Help keep my prison in order, and I'll make life as easy for you as I can. Avery took his leave. The two ground guards remained posted at the door. The tower guards kept their lookout at the bar's rear approach. The triplets were given a chance to talk. So what you have been up to? Reggie asked. Simon frowned. Well, it's been bit of fucking roses, Reg. What do you think? Reggie shook his head. As long as have been easy for me, you know.
1: It's been no picnic.
0: This seemed to trigger something. Marcus, I've got a pack of harvester corn chips. You like those right? He stood with a great heave. He threw the packet over the fence. They landed at Marcus's feet. They scooped them up. Thanks, he replied. He inspected the packet. It's bacon flavour. Do you have any cheese? What do I look like, Reggie asked, a fucking corner shop? All three laughed. The sound almost broke the barrier between them. Almost. No, there's no pleasing you, Simon put to Marcus. He closed in on the bars and tried to look behind Reggie in the small fishing tent he'd set up. Got any energy drinks? Fuck off, you get your three squares a day, this is the only stash I have. Reggie was the most resourceful of the triplets. Like his rats, he was effective in squeezing from tight places. Have you heard anything about Dad? Marcus asked, peeling open the corn chip bag and dipping his fingers in. He's been hitting and he's been hitting hard. Snooker halls, dance venues and factories, Reggie explained what he had heard. Why didn't you go to him? He's not staying stationary. The fleet have them moving all over the city. I don't know where he is, and if I did, he'd be gone by the time I got there. We'll be fine here. He knows you're both here, so he'll come and get you soon enough. You're going to get the stair treatment when he sees that you've set up camp at the boss, said Simon. The triplets could be difficult to control. But they were raised like gentlemen and taught to respect their mother and respect their family name. If any of them were found to be out of hand, all it would take from their father was the stare—a glance from Reginald Penn that reminded the boys that there was a chain of command. I haven't had that stare since the time I wore the makeup. Reggie said. Simon started to laugh. Marcus continued to enjoy the corn chips. I already told you you look ridiculous, Simon remarked. Do you remember that, Marcus? Reggie put to the eldest. I had a bit of a face going on. You were friendly with the girl from the piercing parlor in those days, Marcus mused. Yeah, well, I thought I'd try something different, Si. You're the one to start being a dick about her, Simon protested. You look like a glam rock reject. If you went out looking like that, I would have been in so many fights that day. And besides, when you wear that makeup, it looks like my face with makeup. It's weird to look at. Marcus took another corn chip. He gave her a shadow of a smile. Reggie continued. I was just expressing myself, he maintained. Sam leaped over and fished one of the corn chips. You were expressing yourself until you got the stare. Reggie nodded. I was determined. I wasn't going to listen to you. It was a new me and I had a new shag, so I was doing it. It was bold, but why the fuck should I care what people think? I grabbed my bag. The shoes were painful, mind you, but I was going with it. I forgot I had to cross the through the parlor, didn't I? Dad was in there every morning with his first cup of tea. I stopped, he lowered his newspaper, and he took one look at me, and there it was, the stair. I don't think that's appropriate, Junior, he said. Yeah, I had to, had to change immediately. The three boys started laughing again. Avery came back into the yard. He interrupted them. I can't let you stay here long, the governor said. Distance was brought between the triplets again. We'll come back, Simon assured. I'll just chill here then, shall I? Reggie called back. The next day Marcus and Simon were taken to exercise yard B. This time the ground guards remained outside the door. It clicked close, but they all brighted up when they saw each other. Reggie had kept his camp. Simon was a few pieces ahead of Marcus. Marcus looked up to the left. The gunner was not Rukov. He looked up to the right. The gunner was not Gorvich. Reggie, he said. Has anyone seen you? he asked. Has anyone said anything to you? Reggie shook his head. No, it's been quiet. The warden was out, but he just looked over, and it was like he was pretending I wasn't there. The door opened and the man in question stepped out. Avery was smiling, pleased to see them. It's nice to see family kept together. He spoke warmly. There was so much going on. Simon agreed with an accommodating expression. Marcus, however, was unmoved. There's nothing quite like brothers, Avery said. You're our brother. Your brother for life. Simon's eyebrow raised. Marcus turned to Reggie. Reggie, he called. Run. Avery looked up to the guard towers. Both the left and right were pointing on Simon and Marcus. Ground guards flooded the area. They air quietened. Reggie's grunting could be heard as he tried to breathe. The views of his brothers were locked on him. A voice could be heard calling above all of them. We're a cap of so Causing trouble, where we go? Billy owned a nurse from CBD who had them surrounded. Buddy, Chad and Coops were trailing close behind them with Lord gazes. Ooh, hey boy, Billy grinned. He raised his hand in a gesture to the governor, Avery did likewise. Fine night. Glad I get to spend it with y'all. I'm Billy, he introduced. Your father murdered my pops. That was one giant motherfucking mistake. That will haunt him to the end of his days. Pray to Jesus that sooner rather than later. Right now, I'm here to make a little pawn of my own. He snatched Reggie by the hair and slammed his face against the fence. Simon and Marcus tried to struggle from the guards. He stroked Reggie's hair this time. Marcus took note of the details of Billy's face, from the deep-set wrinkles in his forehead to the dryness of his bottom lip. Just let him go, Simon shouted. Billy looked to Reggie with a satisfied grin. He resumed stroking Reggie's hair softly. King Derry had best our pub's brains in. Ain't that right? But he was hesitant. Billy gave a deep exhale from his nostrils. Marcus grimaced. Let him go. Billy stood. You see, now it sounds like you're being disrespectful towards me. You will learn some manners, boy. He grabbed Reggie's trousers by the waistband and pulled them to his ankles. Simon shrieked. Touch him and I'll fucking kill you. Billy laughed a raspy laugh, almost versed on a cough. I ain't going near him. I ain't no fag. The one to step forward was not a capisole brother. They brought out an inmate to do their bidding. Billy looked to Reggie's expression as firm hands were clasped around his waist. He looked to his brother's expression as Reggie gave a squeal pain as the inmate pushed inside him. Billy grabbed his hair again and slammed his face against the fence. That's what we like from the whores, he taunted. We like them to make lots of noise. He pulled Reggie's head back by his hair again. Tell your brothers just how much you love getting fucked like a whore. Earn your dollar there, boy. Billy, come on, bro, Buddy tried to appeal to him. Shut the fuck up, Dig, Billy turned on his cousin. Marcus, Reggie gasped an appeal to his brother. A tear began to roll down his cheek. There was a tear in Marcus' eye, too. There was nothing he could do. "'Whoo, this boy's gone at the whole good,' Billy cheered. "'Look at him pounding that ass. Does he fuck holes better than Big King, Daddy? I think Daddy I'd not to miss this.' Peeled a phone from his pocket and flashed it in Reggie's face. "'Beautiful, darling. Just beautiful. Look at the way he's biting his lip.' Reggie screamed in pain. "'Oh, he enjoying that shit,' cheered Billy.' What's this guy in for? He asked one of the companions of the inmate. Rape was the reply. Billy continued to taunt. Give her some of that ass slap action. Treat that little whore right. The inmate raised a hand. A stinging blow was delivered. The roar of Capasol laughter shook the trees. They all cheered when the inmate finished. Reggie was pulled away from the fence. Say goodbye to your brother, boys. You ain't ever gonna see him again. Avery West turned to his guard. Put the both of them in the prayer room. The boss lady was gone. That was what had been said. But if you go to the farthest reaches of Cardine, you will find a building no one would care to call home. If you go down to the farthest reaches of Cardine, you will find a building you wouldn't care to visit long. For this building had held confessions killer Tracy Campbell. It had also held woodchip killer Ruth Browning. Confinement room thirty four. The guard opened the slot to check. He heard a scream, but he had closed the slot as quickly as he had opened it, drowning the cries of desperate women out. Tabitha, boss lady of the Knock Knock Club, hadn't spoken to anyone in weeks. It felt like forever. With the death penalty slicing ever closer to her neck like a great pendulum, her access to anyone was limited. She exercised alone. She ate alone. She bathed alone. she had always been a symbol. Lawmakers intended on smashing that symbol and any effect it ever had. From the moment the sentence was declared, the people who supported Tabitha cried their dismay. These people needed to be reminded of what happened to those who took the law into their own hands. Using the skeleton ruse, they were led to believe the execution had already been carried out, the coffin even being removed. This isn't over, cunts, the boss lady warned. But it was over. It was over for so many, and yet there were still so many waiting to stand and be counted. All of this began for me the moment I stepped into the Knock Knock Club, and as long as Tabitha does still live, it can't be over. I am reporter Sam Crusoe, and as I am writing this now, I take a deep breath, and I prepare to describe what happened next. End of episode. If you have been affected by the themes explored in this episode, visit rapecrisis.org.uk for more information on support available.